I'm very happy to be here uh, involved in Uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be involved in a discussion of a subject that almost no one's paying attention to these days. <laughs> and that, of course, is the role of the free press at any time, frankly, but especially now when it has so many layers and so many different dimensions, so many different points of view. If we stop and think about it, however, just in the course of what passes for my adult years and my earlier years in journalism, this is a discussion that's been going on for a long time. The role of the press in the McCarthy era, for example, very good example. What happened when we had the social upheaval of the 1960s, and what was the role of the free press then, and especially the right to express your feelings or opinions about the subjects that were in the air at that time. I've been going back over the Nixon era again, and people remember obviously the big broad strokes of that era, but specifically as well, right after the Saturday Night Massacre, Richard Nixon had a news conference in the East Room of the White House, and he declared to the country and to all of us who were there as the press that it was the most vicious, distorted reporting that he had ever seen. This was all in the context of his freedom to express his opinion about what was going on. So it's not the first time that we've been involved in this kind of mega discussion about the role of the free press, not just the role of it, but the entitlement of people to express themselves in a variety of ways. After all, the First Amendment was part of the root definition of this country. Those people came here because they wanted to express their opinion in their fashion. And it was no mistake and not by accident that it became the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, and we've all treasured that forever. It has, however, many dimensions to it, often, very often, in response to personal interpretations. Donald Trump thinks that he's exercising his First Amendment rights, and the people who are around him feel the same way and they're extraordinarily critical of the press and how it sees him and refuse to acknowledge that the press has that right, right or wrong. Obviously, the best defense of the First Amendment is when you get it right, when you tell the American people what is going on in a fashion that they can understand how it affects their lives, how it fits into the governing laws of this country, and in fact, into the common cause that we all have to try to advance America uniformly. We're not always going to agree on every aspect of our lives, whether it's political or economic or religious, but we have the right to express our feelings about it without distorting it. But I believe at this moment, because of the evolution of social media, we're in an exceptionally dangerous place in America. As we sit here discussing this in this hotel ballroom, a lot of like-minded people, I promise you, there's a man sitting in his underwear in Chicago in a basement, couldn't get a date for the prom, but he's become very dexterous about the use of the new technology 
and he's pumping it out 24-7, trying to distort others' points of view, trying to create a false reality of what the issues are for this country. I know that not just by knowing this man, but I have stayed in touch with an old high school friend who went on to become a very, very good football player. Played for Bud Grant, played Canadian professional football, was all Big Ten. And the reason I stay in touch with him is that I need to know what he is seeing and what he is pumping out. And in the last four years, I've gotten kind of a steady stream, if you will, of claims and material from him. The perfect example came recently when he said to me, have you seen this? It was a single column from the Baltimore Sun, as advertised, with a byline about how African Americans are not equipped to deal with modern Western democracy. They simply don't have the firepower to do it. And he sent to me this, and he said, why don't we read about this? So I collected five other copies of that very same column with different bylines, different newspapers that were posted up, sent them back to him, and I said, Bill, simply because it isn't true. Now, I've gotten so involved with him that I've decided to track down where he's getting this material. I do see the long line of where it's going. It's often going to truck stops in the Midwest and to auto repair places. And it turns out the man who's pumping this stuff out runs a rent-a-cop business for shopping centers in the Midwest, but he's very, very good at distortion, at what he does. He's just one. They're all over America at this point. Whoever has access to a computer of some kind, an iPhone, they can sit in the dark of night or wherever they are and pump out this stuff and contaminate the American people in terms of what they ought to be believing. I'm not saying that they ought to have a singular point of view. I believe strongly in the idea that we're gonna be a stronger country if we have a variety of views that are worked out. But we're now in a situation that is very dangerous because you have so little control over who is pumping it out and whether they're paying any attention to the veracity of it at all or if they just want to make trouble. All of you in this room are aware of that, but we're behind the curve in terms of trying to find a way of dealing with it. And I think it is, frankly, one of the most serious issues that confronts us and will confront succeeding generations because they're growing up with this and they're beginning to take it for granted. If you've got an iPhone or if you're online, say whatever you want. It doesn't have to be rooted in the truth be as destructive as you would like to be. And that has divided this country into parts that I worry that we'll never ever again be able to find common ground because somebody will be constantly trying to take it down. So we are here today to talk about this, but to also honor two people who have been, if you will, not just great stewards, but have been guardians of the First Amendment. Two of the most exceptional journalists, of, certainly of my lifetime. I got to know one of them very early on when she was a researcher for 
Huntley Berkeley and came to California in 1968, a striking and sassy blonde sitting in the midst of all these aging white males. And as she sat there and I walked in and watched her for a while for the first time, I thought, not gonna worry about Leslie Stoll. She can handle herself, whatever is coming at her. The only mistake that NBC made, quite honestly, is that we let her get away. But the relationships never came to an end. Leslie and I have competed and we have been friends. We seldom disagreed. I've had her feet step on mine in convention centers when she races to get to the interview before I do, and nine times out of 10 she has, by the way. But through it all, she's not only been a great journalist, but she's been a great pal. And she's been a great mate as well, and a great mother. She's never left any part of her game as a human being on the floor. She loves what she's doing, she cares about her friends, and as a result, we all care about her. Before we get to the introduction itself, I think we ought to take a look at the remarkable career of Leslie Saul, who says some people like to approach a subject gently. I like to kick in doors. that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it.
Have you seen the really bad schools? Maybe try to figure out what what they're doing? I have not I have not I have not intentionally visited schools that are underperforming. Maybe you should. Uh, maybe I should. Yes. And he said, you know why I do it? I do it to discredit you all and demean you all so when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. I'm Leslie Stahl. Thank you for joining us. Well, you wrote it. Why would you want to <laughs> Did you hear that? I asked him for a copy of the introduction, and he told me that I wrote it. <laughs> wow, Tom. Phew, I'm going to heaven now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. That's the longest piece of tape I've ever seen about anybody in my life. <laughs> I, that needs Don Hewitt to come in and edit. As, everybody, as Hewitt said, there isn't anything I can't edit down in half. Anyway, um, thank you. Thank you all. Um, I, it was suggested that I talk to you about the challenges that we face uh, today in journalism and make it brief. And I thought, brief? How can we make it brief? I could go on for hours. Um, but actually, I thought I would start with President Trump and I was going to tell the story that was in that tape because I asked him, why do you keep going on and on about the press? What's this business with fake news everywhere you go? This was during the campaign. And I said, it is getting so boring. And it's, you know, you've done it so much, it's really not penetrating anymore. And he said, well, yes, it penetra it's been penetrating. And the reason I am trying to discredit you all is so that when you write or report on stories that are negative to me, no one will believe you. And the sad fact is that the public's sense of our trustworthiness um, has gone down. And it has gone down, it had been going down anyway, he's not fully responsible. But today, we are way down there with lawyers. <laughs> I mean, it, how, how bad can it get? Now, here's a little history of our profession. In addition to what Tom told you uh, about this long history of uh, presidents not appreciating us very much, practically every president, certainly in our lifetime, has uh, attacked us in some way. Um, but here's a little history. Uh, up until the 1950s, the press was unabashedly partisan. You had newspapers that were either liberals or conservative. And then along came something in television news called the Fairness Doctrine. And it required broadcasters to provide fair and balanced coverage. And that launched the golden age of 
objective press reporting. It lasted until Ronald Reagan revoked the Fairness Doctrine, and that led to cable news, truth be known, opinion cable news, Fox News, Morning Joe, and so forth. So yes, when people say that the press is biased, there's a lot of truth to it. There's a lot of outlets that are biased, and admittedly so. But of course, not all of us, and our troubles uh, began with the birth of this kind of news outlet. Um, and I, I always think about our old friend, Roger Ailes, who I think Tom and I met when Nixon was president, certainly when George Herbert Walker Bush was president. And he built Fox News and gave it the slogan, fair and balanced reporting, as if all the rest of us were not fair and balanced. Um, and reporters are not helping ourselves when we go on these cable news outlets. And even though a, a hard news reporter tries very hard to be impartial in these broadcasts, there they are nevertheless up there. And just seeing them creates a, a sense and gives fuel to the charge that we're all biased. Um, and something else that's happened is that we're all together in this huge salad bowl called media. And Rush Limbaugh is media, Joe Scarborough is media, 60 Minutes is media, the New York Times is media. We're all tossed together and the public only sees that one word for all of us. And if I look to the lettuce on my left, I'll look to the radish on my right, I'm right in there with them and we're all considered the same thing. And then there's Trump all the time. I never thought, I never thought there would be a president or anybody who could command our attention almost every single day the way Trump has. Um, when the spotlight flickers, he changes the subject, he ups the ante, and we sit there and say, did he say that? Did he tweet that? And there he is leading the news all over again. Now, some of you may say, well, you know, you don't have to put him on television, or you don't have to put him on the front page. Um, but the dirty little secret, and it's not so much a secret, probably all of you in this room know it, that when he's on the news or on the front page, uh, the audiences go up, and when he's not, the audiences go down, and there it is. Um, and yet, with all of that, there is a mainstream media that strives to maintain that old balance. Uh, and this is the group that the president gripes about the most because of their investigative reports about him. But with all that, our greatest challenge, and Tom touched on this, is not President Trump. It's technology. And it's a wave that's imperfect. We'll never stop it. It's just coming, coming, coming. The internet is the enemy, and not just because it's disrupt disrupting the mainstream press. I mean, who isn't addicted? Who isn't addicted? Reporters absolutely rely on and need Google search. If you work on Wall Street, you have to have your Bloomberg. Try, try taking a teenager away from Instagram. Trackers, screens inside our homes and monitors on our bodies phones, watches, 
They are privacy thieves. Alexa, AI, 5G, robotics, facial recognition, data harvesting, cookies. We are all hostages. We are hostages. And to borrow something from James Comey, our technologies are eating our souls. I had lunch the other day with a young mother and she told me that she reads everything on her phone and I thought she meant the news. But she meant everything, everything. She told me that she is worried sick about her eight-year-old son because he sees her constantly buried in her phone, writing emails, checking the news, reading novels, and experiencing friendship through Facebook. And she, is, she worries that her message to her son is that all of life is led on your phone. And I am absolutely crazed about this subject, totally crazed. And that's because I'm a grandmother. And, um, and I'm worried about my grandchildren. Um, I wrote a book about being a grandparent. Yes, I'm touting it. Um, I just have to tell you a little aside, lighten this up a little. The pub date, I saw a man walking down the street right in front of me, pushing a pram with a little boy, and this was a little old man, bent over, and the boy, little boy was acting up, and this man was being just so patient. And it just came out of my mouth. I said, Grandpa, this was in New York, everybody. Gives me a dirty look. Daddy. I thought, oh my goodness. Should I keep going about being a grandmother? <laughs> Granny, I mean, I, I will. Grannies today, we are a whole, how many of you are grandparents? All right, my people, good. You know that we are a whole new breed today, grandmothers particularly, and grandfathers too. But grandmothers don't look like grandmothers. We do not have tightly permed gray hair where you are all blonde. <laughs> I see one who's not blonde, one. We do not dress like grandmothers. <laughs> we jog. We have MBAs and PhDs, and we're the speaker of the house. And we are in families that don't look like families. Have you been to Grandparents' Day lately? Every kid shows up with eight, including pairs of exes who don't talk to each other, <laughs> Grandpa Sam and his husband Herman, and Grandma, who used to be Grandpa. <laughs> anyway, off with the jokes. I am frantic about what Life Online is doing to our country, to our professions, to our relationships, our friendships, and our children. We leapt into the digital technology age without thinking, we gave away our privacy without a care. There are no guardrails, no limits, and now every single thing is on the internet and it's all hackable. There is nothing that someone else can't gain access to. All our gadgets, our bank accounts, you know that HIPAA thing that you sign, your medical records, forget it. There's no such thing as medical privacy. Um, and I worry about my grandchildren, um, will they, when they grow up, be bullied when they get on social media? How will they meet boys? And will they read books? I am so, I'm seriously worked up about this and I actually 
truly considered becoming an activist, you know, like the Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And I was going to start a group called Organization of Grandmothers Against Social Media. And then I realized that the acronym spelled orgasm. <laughs> and so I'm going to keep my day job. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just a little disappointed that um, Leslie did not include the anecdote I gave to her about grandparenting. Uh, actually, friends of our middle daughter, she was gonna have a baby, and her father said to her, who was going through a kind of life crisis, he was become a playboy, he left his wife, and he said, look, I'm very excited about this. I don't wanna be called grandpa. I don't wanna be called grandpa at all. My name is Ben. I'm gonna have a great relationship. I want him to call me Ben. So the grandchild comes along, they do have a great relationship, and for the first three years of his life, the little boy calls him Ben. Then they have grandparents day at school. And the little boy is quite excited. Ben decides to go to the school, walks in, and his grandson looks up at him and says, Ben, what are you doing here? <laughs> and Ben said, it's grandparents day. I'm your grandfather. And the little boy says, you are? So we are going through a lot of transitions. There are people in this room who uh, earlier and then often so admired an editor working in London that he became as familiar to all of us living here as he did to the people in his native country. Walter Isaacson, when he was a Rhodes Scholar, would get on his motorcycle and ride into London just so he could work for this man. Harry Evans was a legend in his time, after his time. And then he was a legend on two continents. So we want to share with you first the tape of Harry Evans, and then I'll have some additional comments. Till later, when I went into journalism, that he was doing what a good reporter did. He asked questions. back on that, that Sunday Times uh, and you admired the courage of the man and he blasted open some of the legal challenges to journalism uh, in ways from which we've all benefited. Mm -hmm. 
these children exist in the real world and we mustn't be put off telling the public about the plight of the children. That was Harry's greatest achievement, I think, to change British law in favour of press freedom, in favour give more power to the powerless. Microphone, sir. Am I get a chance? Am I get a chance to speak? You do get a chance to speak. <laughs> okay, listen. And, and, and there's somebody out there in a kind of a lovely lavender jacket who's going to be keeping track of you, and I and that's you right. know who that is. And that's right. Right in front of you, she'll either go this way or keep it up. So Thank pay you. attention. I want to explain today uh, why Steve Adler is not here the editor-in-chief of Reuters, who has done a fabulous job since he arrived at Reuters, about five minutes before I did. I had no influence on that whatsoever. What he's doing, I think he now is probably just descending from a plane in Singapore. And the president of the company is with him, Michael Friedenberger. And he sent me a note and he said, I'm in tears. I thought, what's up, has, has Stephen slept on the steps or something? Uh, no, Michael, who came into Reuters quite recently as president, was in tears about the two men that Steve Adler and Michael are meeting probably at this very moment. Just relieved from over 500 days in prison in Myanmar, Walone and Hussi. And I can't tell you that what excites me about journalism and what also humbled me 
because I've said, as an editor, you have the luxury of sitting back in your goddamn armchair, as I was told by a Menor reporter, and you send us into these dangerous situations, and then you get all the credit. I said, that's right, how do you find out? Of course that's what happens. So what I want to celebrate isn't this guy you saw flickering in various semi-heroic scenes, it's to picture two men in Myanmar, Burma, more than 500, 600 days ago, on the trail of massive murder, massive rape, slaughter, nearly a million people forced out of their homes in the villages because they were regarded as lower than trash because they happened to be Muslims rather than Buddhists, and the Buddhist extremists called them vile people. And these two reporters, kids really, I mean kids by my standard today, like to think I was a kid once, what they'd done would track through the entire Myanmar, talking to the villagers, listening to them, hearing stories of violence and brutality and murder. What did they do? Rush to press? No. They checked it. And they went back and checked it again. And they went back and checked it again. And finally, they came across a villager, a Buddhist villager, who slipped them a cell phone. And on their cell phone was a picture. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. Ten men kneeling in front of the trench, a shallow grave in which they're about to be pushed by the generals and the extremists in the village. Ten men. And what they did was epitomize the crimes against humanity by the Myanmar government of generals and shamed the Nobel Prize winner who didn't denounce them, didn't denounce the generals, but acquiesced when they were put on a show trial. I mean, the competition with Slansky and this, all the Soviet show trials in which they were papers were planted on them to make them look guilty of a breach of the Official Secrets Act. And they got sentenced to seven years in prison. This is what reporting is about. Seven years in prison was the sentence, separated from their wives and their families, horrible conditions. Reuters put on a fantastic operation to speak around the world about it. And one of the great things, which I do find great consolation in Leslie and Tom, are the qualities of the people who didn't know these two humble reporters, never known to anybody outside Burma, really, until they photographed the 10 men lined up for murder and somehow got it through to Reuters and Steve Adler and the staff did the graphics, checked the stuff, and published it. So immediately they were framed, and they've only this week been released from prison. That's journalism. 
That's journalism at the front end. It moves me. And I feel honored to be a journalist. Thank you. As most of you will know here, that most of the journalists who get killed routinely are murdered. They don't die in, in battlefront confrontations. They're murdered by the dictators, by the militarists, by the people who murdered Magnitsky. And I've called for, and I want to try and continue this campaign, uh, I've called for all the states that protect the killers, states like Myanmar, states like the Soviet Union, states like almost a third of the uh, Southeast Asia, that we should not just simply say these are iniquitous acts. We should demand that the governments, the United Nations, penalize them in the way Bill Browder organized and politicians to introduce the Magnitsky Act to make them enter a category of iniquity states so that their travel is not as smooth as it might be, their exchanges, the foreign aid, and so on, and so on. So, on. so the, the point about the end of this message, what could we do about those two reporters who brought this dreadful truth to the world? And Reuters did his magnificent best, but here's the point. Leslie, Tom, and fellow journalists and politicians everywhere joined in protest against them. And in that, that unity, that strength, that attachment to the truth is the answer to the president occupant of the White House who wouldn't know the truth if it hit him. Which brings me... Uh, working or not, uh, okay. Which brings me to my next point. I think in the current environment, which is not going away, it's only going to get larger, this universe in which everyone has a voice or access to something, that we can't confine the issues that so move us and the concerns that we have about journalism and how we respond to things to rooms like this. We have to expand it to a wider universe so everyone understands the role of journalism and how important it is to free societies everywhere. How do we do that? How do we begin a crusade, if you will, that we begin to, uh, in fact, talk to people about why it's important, go outside these rooms, go to colleges and universities, to rotary clubs and other places. Parenthetically, I'll just tell you one quick story. I spent a lot of time in the American West, as you know, and it's very helpful to me because I get a sense there of their feelings about what's going on. Newspaper publishers in, in a little town in Wyoming, very good guy, and he says to me, we haven't changed. He belongs to a group called the Batterbox. There are nine guys, they meet on Saturdays. They were for Trump at the beginning. They've dialed down a little bit in terms of his behavior, but he said, we're conservatives. This is what we believe in, but we're also journalists, and so we believe in our right to be able to say what we want to and where we want to say it. But he also acknowledges that it's spreading now in the West where everybody who has access to an iPhone or anything else that is an instrument becomes a self-appointed journalist of some kind, Harry. 
I was going to pick up on what Leslie said. You can do something, and it amazes me. How many, how many people in this room have heard of Section 230 of the Trafficking Act? Raise your hand and know that if you do, I'm going to come and question you on it later. Okay? <laughs> Section 230. Section 230, passed by the Congress and by legislators everywhere, <coughs> gives immunity to any crap you want to publish online. Section 230. Why do you think there was so much violence and killings in Myanmar? Not just stirred up by the generals, stirred by, by the populace with access to the web so they can malign and slander and intimidate and stir up the people against the Muslims. That was a, that's still in force. And we're all sitting here accepting this magnificent gift of immunity to some of the worst performers ever in journalism, but they're now part of what Leslie was discussing, which is so, so very true. I just want to say just one other thing. The other thing which is very important, which we don't do enough of, is self-criticism in the press. Every time a journalist breaks into a hospital ward pretending to be a nurse so he can photograph somebody, all those terrible things that happened in Britain in hacking, all, all of which happened under Mr. Murdoch's newspapers, the most appalling things that happened we in the press should be extraordinarily careful and we should admit error because we must got, we've got to keep our goddamn halos, otherwise we're naked. And so I think every time a journalist falsifies a story or gets it wrong or fails to apologize or loads up the stories, I mean, sometimes CNN seems to have only one thing on its mind, CNN. I feel like saying, Brexit, Europe's breaking up. No, 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 no. It's, and this is very tragic because I always regard, when I first came here uh, in nine, a long time ago, 1956, uh, America was part of the world. Now you seem to have sawn yourself off. You inhabit a place called Trumpland. What's happened to the rest of the world? Venezuela, yes. Poland, Hungary, where's that? See what I mean? We're actually becoming a much more insular country because the press has turned inward and is gazing at Mr. Trump's navel. Just think of that as a prospect <laughs> all the time. Leslie, I'm but, sorry. But I, just a quick response, and that is that there is a wave of around the world of conservatism, uh, a wave toward dictatorship, and a wave against the press. And when I spoke about a tide coming because of uh, technology, I see a political tide right now that is going against us. And the only thing I think that we can do is just keep reporting. I mean, I, I really, when I was joking about becoming an activist, it's hard for us to be activists. It's not our role. Our role is just to keep trying very hard to get to the truth and publish, publish, publish because we're, we're right now, now history is, goes back and forth and uh, these political movements change from time to time, but I think we are in a dark time in terms of liberalism and the idea that people should fight for the free press. And that's in Europe and it's in Latin America and sadly it's in our own country, I think. I'm very depressed. 
yeah. about oh, the state my, of journalism. Yeah, my own feeling is as well, the two of you, is that uh, we have to get proactive uh, as a profession and get the hell out of New York and Washington, D.C., and take it to the country and go to places where we volunteer, have representatives of the CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists, show up in schools and in rotary clubs and that kind of thing and talk about what we do and why we do it and what the consequences are and be a little more self-critical. I think you're quite right on that, that we are you know, a club and we like being in the club and for a long time it worked very well, but the world has changed in journalism in terms of how people see us and what they expect of us. Uh, we're told to, to wrap it up here, and so we're going to do that. But let me just, if I can, in the closing moment here, share with you one story that tells you about what we're up against institutionally. I have a friend who's a very conservative banker in Montana. That's a redundancy. There are no liberals. <laughs> and uh, he let, me, let me leave you with one thought. Uh, I've mentioned proprietors, Northcliffe. We're lucky with the Thompson family. Uh, Northcliffe said famously, news is what somebody somewhere wants to suppress. Everything else is advertising. So if we keep chasing the news and making sure we've got it right, as Leslie says, but also that we expose it when other organs of the journalism get it wrong, we should say, why did you do that, that false story? Why did you do this? I'd like to see the press reform itself by trying always to be uh, honorable and accurate, and sometimes we're not. And not be afraid to open, if you will, to the public, yes. uh, our process, right. about how we came to that decision and why we're doing it. The, the pressure is gonna come, and it's unrelenting, and it's expanding at all times. Thank you all very much Thank for you. being here. Thank you.